millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, in this centenary anniversary of a major year in Irish history, we have, on occasion on this podcast, dipped into the past to take a look at how things were. And nearly exactly a century ago, on the 11th of July 1921, a truce was called in the War of Independence. The conflict, which had been vicious at times and uneven, I suppose, in how it manifested itself across the island, had been going on for just over two years. The truce brought it to an end and in one respect it was the last time that anything resembling a national army, if you want to put it that way, has fought against a recognised outside entity, that being the British Armed Forces in this case. Some, of course, might dispute that in terms of what occurred in Northern Ireland in more recent decades, but whatever your opinion on that, the War of Independence was a conflict of a completely different character. The other significant aspect of the truce was that it brought to an end a sense of unity of purpose that had existed probably since the 1916 rising among Irish nationalists. So, what was it like for the ordinary man and woman in the street when the fighting came to an end? What was the feeling among the combatants as to whether their work was done? And was there any way, in light of how much had been achieved, that what was to follow could have been avoided? Joining me to discuss these issues is Dr. John Barganova from UCC's School of History, who is also the co-editor of Atlas of the Irish Revolution. John, you're very welcome. Mick, how are you? John, the truce. First of all, could you give us the sort of, uh, you might call it the idiot's guide to how it came about? So we're going to call the, the War of Independence. The date most historians usually give it, or the public, would, would be that it started in January 1920 when the Dole Aaron Forum, the first Dole sat, declared independence. And the same day, there was a kind of a, 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 an ambush in Solahead Beg and Tipperary, and that started the shooting. In reality, as far as a military conflict, there was very little activity in 1919, but things started to kick off at the beginning of 1920. And there was uh, an IRA offensive began in January against the Royal Irish Constabulary, who were the primary... Uh, political police and ordinary police on the island and were responsible really for containing the independence movement. But over a course of a number of months, uh, individual uh, RIC constables were assassinated. A number of police stations were seized or attacked, uh, abandoned. A number of hundreds of stations were abandoned uh, and then subsequently burned. The police retreated into the larger towns. Morale um, plummeted as the police were subjected to a, a pretty comprehensive boycott by the public. Uh, and within that kind of condition, it looked like the, the police were basically in a state of collapse. That brought the British government to reinforce the administration in Ireland. They brought in new personnel, including some civil servants, um, but they also brought in reinforcements for the RIC who were recruited outside of Ireland. 
and they collectively became known as the Black and Tans. In addition, the British Army reinforced the garrison in Ireland, pouring more troops in, and increasingly the British Army became responsibility for a lot of law and order in the country. Uh, and the response there was the IRA uh, um, continued to militarize. Um, by the autumn, they started to form flying columns, uh, undertake aggressive actions against the Crown forces and ambushes, which in turn triggered responses, collective punishments and reprisals against not just Republicans, but also their supporters and also the general public. And that aroused a, a tremendous amount of interest by the end of 1920. And then the first six months of 1921, the, this, that conflict rumbled on. Uh, it was a bit more militarized. Uh, the reprisals were a bit more controlled, uh, but it was basically ambushes, uh, evasion, uh, British attempts to capture IRA uh, leaders and, and, and volunteers, uh, and a really aggressive propaganda campaign and political campaign by the Republicans who had both a political wing and a military wing that were pushing for independence. And that basically, at a, at a certain stage, the leaderships of both the British government and the Irish Republican administration, which is uh, uh, governed, was, was then governed by a second Dole, uh, saw the opportunity for uh, a compromise and a compromise that was eventually produced by the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Um, and the first step of that was to stop the hostilities. And so through some backdoor channels and on the 11th of July, a truce was declared between the two belligerent powers. And what was there uh, in, in terms of the lead up to it, John? The, the the king went to Belfast and he made a speech there. Was it a couple of months before that that was seen as opening the way for the politicians? Or was there those kind of manoeuvrings there prior to the end of hostilities? Well, so the, the British had brought in legislation to create Northern Ireland and basically create two entities, uh, British entities on the island, a Northern Ireland entity and a Southern Ireland entity. Uh, and the Northern Ireland one began to start, it was just starting to function. And that was seen as kind of a, a kind of a fallback position for the British as well, establishing a, a protective zone in around Ulster that would be remain loyal and re attached to them. Um, the, 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 the King uh, uh, George went to open that Belfast first parliament and gave kind of conciliatory uh, speech it didn't really change public opinion or political opinions in the South or among the Sinn Féin leadership. They didn't really care that much about what the King had to say about the future of Ireland, but it did create political cover for the British government to continue these peace to go and, and show that at the highest level, uh, a, a peace um, settlement, a peace path and a peace process, if you want, um, was had the support of the crown and, um, it, that it was probably worth the political risk for the British leaders of the time to pursue. That makes sense. Yeah. And so we come to the 11th of July and, and I think there was a few days notice that the truce was going to come into effect then. What was the reaction among the general public? I mean, you laid out there the nature of the conflict. What Was there an immediate reaction that of relief that something has ended or, you know, that we have seen elsewhere when a conflict ends where people pouring out into the street or any of that? So we think about what conditions were like. So in Munster and with also um, Kilkenny and Wexford included, it was martial law. 
and that was a pretty rigorous enforcement. Um, some places, the, the the administration, the British Crown administration was quite harsh. In some places, it was relatively subdued. But keep in mind, people had been uh, under curfew for a long time. So there were there and you could be shot for being outside your house if you didn't halt. It didn't halt. Uh, and if you were seen on the streets, you could be arrested for being on the streets after a certain time. Most public amenities have been canceled. Public recreations have mainly been canceled. Um, there was uh, there was fear. There was constant fear of violence. Violence was kind of everywhere. Um, so the life of the ordinary person in Ireland, and, and especially in what became what's now the Republic, um, was quite uh, uncomfortable and unsettled. So the truce basically was just kind of a, a relief. Uh, and you know something I'm, I'm sure we can kind of we can kind of appreciate today a return to normalcy and and kind of a, a reduction in your stress levels and your fears as as life kind of returns to normal. And the likes of martial law and curfews and that were all ended when the truce came about. No, martial law continued. I'm pretty certain curfews were ended, but basically the crown forces stopped aggressively patrolling and policing. So they just they just took a step back. And they stopped raiding and they stopped doing cordons and searches. So basically they were still visible, but they weren't being aggressive, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, definitely. And that was the reaction among um, that, fr- <laughs> that phrase. I, 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 there's a guy who writes to me occasionally, John, and, and he's, I think he's a fellow who likes giving opinions to journalists, what have you, but he always CCs to the plain people of Ireland. And I think that's, that's, uh, that was the kind of reaction that there was there among the so-called plain people of Ireland. You know what I, what I would say just about the, the actual, you know, the, the actual day of the truce or whatever. Um, in some places, people came out in the streets and they were partying and, and, and whatever. A lot of places, like in Cork City, for example, they issued strict instructions to everybody to stay inside. Uh, the Republicans did, uh, including like all the brass bands were told to stay home. And because they were afraid, they were afraid they might there might be a collision and Crown forces would fire into the into. They thought, I think some of the Republican leadership thought if people were too celebratory, it might trigger Crown forces firing into them. So for safety reasons, rather than than safety. Oh yeah, for safety reasons, there was there was still a sense that, that it was really precarious and uh, that and, and and you know Crown forces had been doing things like firing into crowds for a couple of years. And, and shooting, you know, and that kind of that kind of um, state violence was a part of everyday life. So people weren't quite entirely sure how it was going to go down. Um, and so it's only it kind of re- the, that. So it was still quite tense the first day or two of the trees. And then it starts to as it settles in, people started to settle down. Right. No. And that was the the, the people, as I said, the, the, the so-called yeah. plain people of Ireland, as they're called. Yeah, what about uh, combatants? What? that you have um, found in, in terms of your study, what was the attitudes among the combatants to the truce? They were surprised. They were totally surprised. Economy, they didn't, th- you know, there were some rumblings that there had been some backdoor negotiations, but people didn't have any, that, they weren't transparent at all. People had no real idea what was going on. And then a couple, you know, I think on the 9th, the order goes out to, to stop, to shut everything down on the 11th. And, yeah, they were surprised they, and they saw it as a victory. They saw it as, you know, the British government, which had which was shooting IRA prisoners, executing IRA, captured IRA prisoners, which had criminalized the, the, the 
the armed resistance to that extent, all of a sudden is negotiating with an, a, essentially an Irish government. It's a, it's a, a, you don't have a truce with a terrorist criminal conspiracy. You have a truce with another belligerent force, which was a recognition, which the, the Republicans saw as a recognition that they had not, they had never received from the British. So that was seen as a symbol, as a kind of a, a symbolic victory. And then for a lot of people too, they assumed that the Republic, the, the British government had sued for terms. So, you know, they saw it as, they saw it as a, as a victory and that probably set their expectations too high for the subsequent Anglo-Irish treaty. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually, the expectations that were there among the combatants in particular. So to that extent, John, among the general body of the combatants, there hadn't been any intimations that things were moving towards a truce or a cessation. No, it was there wasn't that kind of transparency. And so maybe some of the really senior leaders outside of Dublin. In Dublin, I think people are, a lot of the IRA would have picked up on it because those negotiations and those backdoor channels were going on in Dublin. But outside of Dublin, uh, that they wouldn't have had any kind of visibility of that and, and really seen what was coming. So it was kind of, it was kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, even amongst people who were kind of in the know, I think they were still relatively surprised at what happened. And I think for the, or for most of the IRA and coming them on, it was just, it was a, a big surprise. And, and it's all kind of like a get out of jail for arts. You know, they're under all this pressure and then all of a sudden the pressure's off. And so there was a great release, I think, and and, and sense of relief, as well as a sense that they'd, they'd, they'd achieved something. Right. And at that stage, was there any suggestion uh, of um, people within the IRA and coming to mind that there were different schools of thought as to what was actually the aim of the war at the time, you know, that what was eventually to evolve into the two sides? Or was it, as, as I think I mentioned in the intro, had there been up until that point a real sense of unity there? Oh, there had been unity and people were, I think, were, were naive in that they assumed that there was unity at, at the leadership about what they were going to, what kind of terms they were going to get. If we just, I mean, I know we're not going to talk about the, the, the treaty really, but one of the one of the things that started the civil war was the treaty terms were were totally unexpected by the the by much of the IRA they did not expect dominion status a partition island that was that was in the empire in a dominion that was not what they expected uh, and it's not what they what they thought that they had been achieving and that's why about three quarters of the IRA rejected the treaty eventually but going back to July. They had a they had confidence that their leadership would speak with one voice and would you know achieve some kind and the concessions I think that were what were what were what were being thought about was maybe concessions about things like maybe the treaty not even the treaty ports but maybe things like you know having neutrality not allowing another belligerent country giving some the British some security concerns about the island they didn't anticipate I think being a dominion within the British Empire, or that's not the solution they were looking for. Yeah, so to that extent, they weren't conditioned from the leadership to expect anything less. And it's also interesting, I mean, you put it there, John, it's also interesting to the extent that it suggests that there was a feeling among the body of 
the combatants there that uh, irrespective of the world situation and the British Empire's role in the world and the history of conflict that there had been anywhere within the empire, that they seemed to have really believed that the course they were on was going to lead to something that was completely unique at that time, as in a complete break with Britain and the establishment of this republic. Yeah, and they thought it was. They thought if they stuck to their principles, they you know, like sticking to their principles, and and kind of doing a a Don Quixote, what, what had worked for them so far, you know, like they like there's you know going back to 1916, who could have thought that that was going to be a political triumph, or 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 the the strong line they took against conscription, or just, just everything they've been doing. You know, it didn't seem like, you know, if you were pragmatic, you would have thought that that solution was never going to work. And yet here they were before the eyes of the world, you know, going toe to toe against the British Empire, which controlled over a fifth of the world's population. And global sympathy was for them. They thought that they were on. They they, they thought that this path was going to win, even if they didn't really know specifically how it it was going to be resolved. And again, when we think about what happens with the treaty later on, you know, three quarters of the IRA and about three quarters of coming on just reject the treaty, even though they don't really have a, a, a solution to how it's going on, they, of, of what an alternative is. They just think that if they continue to stick to their principles, that in the end, will it'll come good. They don't know quite know how, but that's that's kind of their belief. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Right, and a great man for subsequently coming up with alternatives, certainly mathematical formulas and what have you in relation to Ireland's position, was one Eamon de Valera, the president of the newly established Republic as it saw itself. Now, soon after the treaty, Dev, I think I'm correct in saying he went to meet Lloyd George and there has always been a theory that uh, that was the meeting that dragged him down to earth and made him realise that this notion of the Republic, as you were saying, that, that, that uh, an awful lot of the IRA thought was the ultimate destination, that that was not realistic. And that people, some people suggest that subsequently influenced his decision not to, um, to go to the treaty negotiations. But what was that meeting between Dev and Lloyd George very crucial, the one they had soon after the truce. First of all, I think this this whole idea that, that Dev didn't go to the treaty negotiations in London and didn't attend the treaty negotiations in London as some kind of Machiavellian strategy, I think that's totally, I think that's, you know, that was, that's kind of a, a you know, the Neil Jordan version of, of the history. And I don't, I don't really, I don't necessarily. <laughs> right. I think it predated Neil Jordan in all fairness. Or Tim Pat Coogan, you know, the idea that, uh, De Valera's reading Machiavelli and, and figuring out how to do down Michael Collins. I don't think that was going on and on at all. If you go back, so Dev had been in the United States for for all of nineteen for pretty much all of nineteen twenty uh, and half of nineteen nineteen. And if we go back to that stage, there was an expectation among the Irish Republicans that the United States would pressure Britain into surrendering independence to Ireland. Because Britain owed the United States States billions in war debt from the First World War. So the Americans had a lot of leverage over uh, the British. And the Irish were like, well, and we have great power in the Democratic Party, which was the control the White House. 
um, because of the Irish American diaspora and our strength there. So Dev spends over a year, which he was criticized for, trying to mobilize enough Irish American or American support to pressure the British to surrender independence. And at the end of the day, the Americans were unwilling to do that. They didn't recognize the Republic and they weren't willing to put American national interests before, uh, uh, you know, uh, to surrender American national interests for the sake of Irish national interests. And De Valera, I think, saw that and understood that. And he was already seeking a compromise that would alleviate the worst British objections. Uh, and he understood that there was going to be, and I, but what he, his solution wasn't a bad one. It was basically that um, Ireland, the sovereignty of this new state lies with the Irish people uh, and that the Irish people are willingly going into the British Commonwealth. And he was willing to give them, give them any, some kind of commitments about security, commitments that they wouldn't be a potential you know, enemy or they wouldn't conspire with Britain's enemies, uh, 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 you know, committals that they might be in the empire for a certain period of time. But the whole idea was that they would be, they were free to go in and free to go out eventually. And, and that was the kind of compromise, that was the solution he saw. And that was called external association. Um, and, but that wasn't what the British were willing to surrender because for the British, any kind of compromise on sovereignty would potentially trigger similar movements in other parts of the empire, most particularly and dangerously in Egypt and in India. And Britain saw that if they lost, Egypt's critical because of the control of the Suez Canal connects them to India. India is critical because of the, the, the big massive market and the big massive population there made, really made Britain into a superpower. So any kind of loss of those two elements of its empire were really dangerous. And at the time of the Irish War of Independence, those countries were their independence movements and there was a lot of resistance to British rule. So a compromise was seen as potentially uh, a, a compromise on Irish sovereignty was seen as a potential uh, compromise on the empire itself. And the British weren't willing to do that. And the British were willing to burn down the Ireland if necessary uh, to prevent that from happening. And what about that meeting then that Dev and, and Lloyd George had soon after the truth? Was that very significant? The, the significance of it was Dev was refusing to cede ground uh, um, in terms of the symbolic things. You know, he's head of an independent state and Lloyd George is refusing to acknowledge him as, as, a, as a head of an independent state or as a sovereign nation. And they're kind of going at each other. And, and Dev doesn't really yield. And Lloyd George real is, you know, is aware all of a sudden that there's going to be pretty strong resistance. And I think for Lloyd George, there had been, and for the British cabinet and what have you, there had been an expectation that because Dev was represented the civil leadership of the Republican movement, that he was a moderate. Uh, and what when they came face to face, Dev had really dug in his heels and just would not yield. Uh, and that probably that probably surprised Lloyd George and also gave him a cause for worry because they were putting a lot of political capital on a potential peace solution and Dev wasn't really giving much away. So that would be, my, that would be to me, that would be the big significance of it. And just briefly, because I did, to, do you think that that meeting at all influenced Dev's subsequent decision not to go to London? No, 
Right. No, I, I think I think just to, just really quickly about the about the, the what happens with the London negotiations. I think that Dev saw that the British wanted dominion status. They wanted a certain kind of dominion status. Dev was holding out for external association, so sovereign independence within the empire. So a voluntary, we we agree to go into the empire, just as, and we can agree to go out again. I think I was so that was Dev's preferred solution. I think the whole idea of the, of the treaty negotiations and the reason he stuck, hung back was because he could reject uh, he could reject the if the the the, the treaty delegates um, were like kind of at the end of their tether he could threaten to blow up the negotiations remotely from Dublin and that would create a crisis and then he could come in and in that real political diplomatic crisis he could push the British cabinet enough that they would surrender external association. So anticipating that 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 the, the that the the talks would reach a crisis mode, and in that crisis mode, they they could just push the line a little further, and that would give them external association. And external association would allow would would hold the whole movement together. But instead of doing that, Griffith and Collins signed the treaty. So that that they and, and that I think that really shocked him and it really angered him. That they 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 knew that there that he didn't he he opposed the terms they were going to sign, and he was hoping for a, a threat of a breakdown in the negotiations. Uh, and instead of that happening, they sign they sign the treaty, and it puts it totally changes the negotiating dynamic, and it basically ends the negotiating dynamic, and it splits the movement. Yeah, and that was. As you say, the treaty negotiations went on the following December 1921 and, and, yeah. and, and the fallout thereafter. We all know that and, yeah. and that of itself is something we're going to have to face into in terms of commemorating the Civil yeah. War and what have you. It's back in July 21, John, uh, the other big figure there, of course, Mick Collins, yeah. later it was suggested that one of the influences on him subsequently when he went to those negotiations and the outcome of them, that he was aware that the nature of the war effort among the IRA, that resources were depleted and that, in his opinion, going back to war was really a very last option on the basis that he didn't see much prospect for it. What was the situation like when the truce came about in terms of their capacity to continue with the war effort that had been going on for the previous 12 months and more? So... In Dublin, things they were pretty hard. They were hard pressed in Dublin, uh, and there had been a lot of arrests of the IRA leadership. And um, I think Collins himself and probably Mulcahy, they felt pressure. They were on the run and and what have you. Although they chose to remain in Dublin, where Dublin was flooded with troops and what have you. So in, in Dublin, I think they were hard pressed. Elsewhere in the country, there, like in Cork, for example, the IRA felt pressed, but there was no question that they were they could continue to resist and re, and new resistance and all of a sudden up in like mayo was really starting to go off um kind of louth and, and kind of armagh those are those places on the border start to really get active in in kind of may and june and there are more their ira attacks are continuing to increase may june into july so the ira campaign is continuing to escalate right up to the truce so there's no there's no question that they're they're not they're not about to surrender they're not about to run out resistance. Um, mili- so what so that's the military solution. Now what you could think of strategically is would another year of IRA resistance 
bring them any closer to uh, a, a settlement on the terms they want. You can make an argument that no, it wouldn't. And if the British really went off, if they really brought in more troops and they started burning the country down or doing whatever, um, that uh, you could see, you could have seen an, an unraveling of the Republican position. Um, so that was probably what he was. That was probably what he was thinking. I think subsequently he also exaggerated the the plight of the IRA because that made his because that def, in order to defend his decision. So you know the idea that you had us beat, we only could have lasted a week. That's that's total nonsense. Uh, and and the and the IRA um, outside of Dublin felt that in a lot of places felt they were winning. Right, and then I, I, we come to the truth, and as you said, they're still were strong in various areas. There, what was the feeling among the the combatants and th- those who've been involved among the politicians, and that in that kind of lacuna between the truth and what subsequently, when the negotiations began in in November, December, like was there anticipation that was there a kind of a feeling that. No matter what happens, the war is over. Or was there a feeling that we're, there was a suspended sense of uh, existence about her? What was the, the the general thrust of that at the time? Well, so first of all, it was a really warm summer. It was a, it was like a, it was a historically great summer. So we know how what a, what a good summer does to the to the public mood in Ireland, right? <laughs> so so apparently, like that July and August was warm, like uns, like so the weather was great. And so there was dances, people were going out. Like it was, it was, a, and especially when it, 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 the truce looked like it was holding and there was optimism for the negotiations. So everyone's spirits were really kind of lifted. Uh, and there are a lot of, a, a lot of weddings are kind of going on. A lot of the IRA coming to mom folks are getting married, all kinds. So it was apparently a really good time. Uh, and especially, you know, all the release after being, being a fugitive for a year or two or what have you. Um, and the, when the treaty delegates go to uh, go over to London, I think that there's a real sense of optimism and, you know, also a real sense of accomplishment because they were going, like they were going into 10 Downing street, you know, like the, the, the these people who have been accused of being, uh, you know, criminal terrorist corner boy degenerates all of a sudden are marching in, uh, to marching through the streets of London to meet with the cabinet, the most senior officials of the British Empire. And they're going through the front door and they're going in, they're not going in with revolvers in their pockets. Uh, and I think that, that that also lifted confidence in how this was going to go. And the idea that, that this was this was the final furlong. Uh, and again, when we talk about expectations being high, I think that there were high expectations for the subsequent settlement. And I think that. Uh, one of the things to me that's really striking is the political leadership. Like Mick Collins came to Cork and met with all the Irish Republican Brotherhood leaders in County Cork in like maybe September or October. And he made no mention that there was going to be a compromise on the Republic. And he he mentioned it kind of a silent, a quick aside to Liam Lynch and Floria Donahue that he probably wasn't going to come back with the Republic. And Floria Donahue says that they were absolutely shocked. And then he went out and he told them that didn't didn't mention that to the wider group and said that if there's any going to be any kind of fundamental compromise, he'd come back and, and, and they could debate it before that happened. So there was an expectation that anything like that would be 
would trigger some kind of internal debate. And so when the treaty instead was signed and presented as a fait accompli, there was a real sense of betrayal amongst the Republican. They, they thought at least you'd, you'd consult people before you signed away the Republic that they had fought for. And so I think that kind of explains why people were so intransient and entrenched in their position and that they dug so deep in when the, when the treaty split happened and, you know, going and then kind of hurtled down, down towards the road to civil war. And that's interesting, John, because, I mean, it suggests there and subsequent, you, you could draw some parallels with Northern Ireland the last 30 years and the way things were managed politically and what have you, as with other places where, there, where there's changes and that kind of thing, that the whole business of the management of expectations, that seems to have been done very badly. Because as you said yourself, like they've even had sort of come to a conclusion about this external association, which was not a republic. Collins, even to his closest confidants, was still playing cards close to his chest, unless perhaps, well, would he have still believed that it was possible even at that stage? No, I don't think so. I think he was, I think he was, I, I, and I think, so what I think with Dev, I think he had a, he had a solution in his head. The external association was, was the solution. That could it was a really super narrow tightrope, but it was a possible solution that would keep that would prevent civil war and give a peaceable solution to that. I think for Collins, Collins thought that his personal standing and charisma could hold the movement together. That only thing he had to do was talk to so and so and so and so and bring him on, and then everyone will know. You know what's good enough for Mick Collins is good enough for me. Like. <laughs> By the way, we're like that's a what kind of what kind of uh, of cult of personality is that developing? You know, and I think that he that was his um, that was his roadmap out that he personally could hold the thing together through his because because everyone loved him and 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 whatever. Um, and both of those uh, both of those uh, alternatives were wrong basically. And what you instead what you have is you have. Uh, an inevitable compromise. Now, I'll also say this: British expectations for the treaty was not what ended up. Ha- they they thought they were setting up a loyal state that was going to be, you know, serving the British Empire uh, and was still going to be part a, a glad part of this community of nations known as uh, the British Commonwealth. Uh, without and that was too optimistic. They didn't realize that by shoving down this, um, this, their preferred solution um, that they were basically going to create such, such antagonism that within 10 years that the Irish free state would pull out kind of unilateral or 15 years, they would pull out unilaterally from the British empire. And in 20 years, they would abandon, uh, they refused to join the second world war when Britain really needed help. And I don't think they, I don't think they saw that, as a possible solution. If we go back to South Africa, so the the Anglo-Boer War was a really, um, it was a critical conflict for for all these people because they came of age of it. Winston Churchill, Lloyd George, um, the the Republicans also had grown up being pro-Boer and what have you. And what happened with the the Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War, was that Britain basically kind of fought these, these uh, subdued these Boer republics, there was really severe guerrilla, uh, guerrilla campaign by the Boer commandos. The British put it down brutally. They did a scorched earth and rounded up the Boer 
uh, women and children in internment camps where they had they had about 25,000 died of disease. Really brutal. But then they had a solution and a dominion was set up in South Africa that proved quite loyal to the British administration. And one of those Boer commando leaders, the an equivalent of Michael Collins, Jan Smuts, all of a sudden in the First World War is a British field marshal. And South Africa is sending troops to fight with Britain. And former Boer enemies are British friends. And Jan Smuts, uh, uh, Field Marshal Smuts, ends up being a backdoor. He's in Dublin in June trying to negotiate, uh, you know, uh, peace, peace talks and what have you. And so for the British perspective, they're like, oh, the, this new Irish Free State is going to be like South Africa. It's going to be it's going to be loyal. We're enemies now. We're enemies now. But in five years, we'll be friends again. They didn't realize that they were basically salting the earth and, and kind of and, and that this solution was basically going to create such bad blood that there would be a, a swing and uh, the, the Irish public would support the withdrawal from the British Commonwealth, from the British Empire uh, and kind of celebrate it as well, which is going to what happens in the 1930s. Right. And just finally, in relation to the truce, John, um, once it was called, was there any afters in terms of violence? I mean, was there any, did fellas sort of go off reservation, so to speak? You know, um, was there any sectarian issues? Was there anybody, any kind of criminal activity, any drunken activity, fellas who still had guns, anything of that nature following the truce or, or, or was discipline kept tight? So discipline was kept pretty tight. Um, in, mo- in most parts of the country, they were aware that there were, you know, the British were still there. Um, they, they also were trying to um, show their capacity for orderly self-government. So one of the big arguments was the Irish were, <laughs> were racially and culturally incapable of governing themselves. That was one of the reasons the British had denied Irish self-governance for so long, that kind of trope. And the Irish... Republicans were trying to demonstrate to the world that they were capable of orderly self-government. So they may, went to great efforts to show, uh, uh, you know, that there were law and order, there was no chaos, there was no anarchy, that they weren't communists, they weren't Bolsheviks, and everything was kind of, it was just, if the British just left, everything would be fine. Um, and there wouldn't be any religious implications as well. And that was a problem up in, with the Unionists in Ulster, it wasn't a problem in the South. So things were, were, were relatively, were pretty tame, pretty, uh, you know, it was a lot calmer and more peaceful and there was a peaceful coexistence. What you see though is after the treaty is ratified by the Dole, the Anglo-Irish Treaty in early 1922, that discipline starts to break down and that's when you start to get chaos and you get a lot of industrial unrest, you get a lot of agrarian unrest and you have, that's when you have IRA guys going in and demanding cigarettes and drinks in the name of the Republic. And you have discipline in certain units breaks down. There's robberies, all, like IRA guys involved in robberies and, 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 the, and the, the movement has a real hard time governing its members uh, and governing also. And a lot, and, you know, much of this anarchy isn't being carried out by Republicans. It's just, it's just social tensions that have burst out. And that really happens in 22 when the British withdraw fast and the, and the new free state government isn't functioning. And part of the first few months of 1922 is pretty chaotic and it creates within the Irish public um, a, a need, a desire for orderly self-government. And that's why they really support 
they've really growing behind the new provisional government and and the treaty, not because they want to be a dominion within the British Empire, but because this solution is going to bring some kind of stability to the country. And and so, yeah. That fascinating, John. And it was, as we say, it was um, the truce itself. It, it actually was highly significant point in history in that respect. And I have to say, you certainly bring it alive. If you don't mind me asking, John, one thing I'm curious, you obviously didn't begin life in the Beira Peninsula or anywhere around Cork. What brought you to Cork and interested you so deeply in Irish history? Because you obviously have a great grasp of it. Well, I, I, I just got interested in it when I was, um, really when I was an undergraduate, you know, you, you tell by my surname, I, I, I was kind of, I was raised in kind of an Italian-American neighborhood. Although my mom, my mom's family, my mom's, Grandparents were Irish immigrants, uh, and she's Oregon Irish. Um, but I wasn't really raised in an Irish American environment. But that being said, when I grew up in San Francisco, I went to school with a lot of there were a lot of Irish, and there was like a good cultural center here with a good library. And so once I got interested in this kind of, especially in this period of Irish history, um, it was easy to do so in San Francisco. And then eventually, I went over to start doing my studies at UCC, and then kind of everything. The rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> it sure is. It's, it's a great version of history, I have to say. John, John Barganova, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, thanks, Mick. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening, folks. Uh, you can get us wherever you listen to your podcasts and do keep listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>